0: Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving
1: societal expectations. How do we do these? Do you just um, – uh, We're you, just you, going. So you,
0: you, you, we, this can go wherever you take it. Okay. You, yeah. you are very – I've interviewed you before. You're very good at not answering my questions. That's That's not true. Not at all. Hi, I'm Alan Murray. This is Leadership Next, and we're setting up here for an interview with Ginny Rometty, the CEO of IBM. I've known her for a decade, and she's used to my sense of humor.
1: Yeah, yeah. oh my God, yes,
0: yes. (laughs) Okay, um, I'm ready to go whenever you're ready to go. So
2: if everyone can silence their
1: phones, please. Including yours truly.
0: I sat down with Ginny Rometty in early February, just after the news broke that she was stepping down as CEO of IBM. And then I caught up with her again last week to pick her brain about something she's long been deeply passionate about, jobs and training. Coming out of this economic crisis that we're in, it's going to be absolutely critical. And she has some very strong opinions and has been doing a lot of work on how to go about creating the opportunities that we'll need. We're going to hear more about that later in this episode. But first, I wanted to talk about Jenny's role with the Business Roundtable, which is the main lobbying arm for corporations in Washington. She was one of the key players behind a major announcement that the Business Roundtable made late last summer.
1: America's biggest companies are making a new pledge, and shareholder return is no longer the main objective.
2: A statement signed by almost 200 CEOs says companies should focus on all stakeholders, including employees, customers, and local communities. This is interesting.
0: It is interesting. Jenny Rometty was one of the CEOs that really pushed that statement through. And it was a bold move on the part of the business roundtable. They threw out their old mission statement, which said that a company's primary responsibility is to make money for its shareholders. So, Jenny, tell us
1: why you did it. Well, we found the old statement didn't reflect how many people led their company or believe they should lead their company. And in fact, actually, people were digging up that statement and saying, gee, is this what you really
0: believe? So let's, let's stick with that old statement for a second. This was inspired, I would think, by the late Milton Friedman, the economist who wrote a piece in the 1970s saying, the social responsibility of business is to make a profit for their shareholders, period.
1: Yes, but if, uh, my view, I've read that statement, and if you read the whole article, the whole thing he wrote, I don't believe it says just that. And in fact, you think it was
0: misinterpreted?
1: My interpretation of it is that it is a broader set of responsibilities. That, of course, you have to make money for the corporation, but how you do that matters. The how is a big reason why we revisited that statement because it says you have a responsibility to these different constituencies, including shareholders. And this idea that you manage for the long term means you put a word and between those. You know, and eventually over time, that becomes a pretty virtuous circle, right? None of it is just altruistic. I mean, I feel very strongly about why do I care about education and why do I care about people having the right skills for the digital age? Well, I need the public to accept my products, for one thing, and I have to have employees. So there is a reverse responsibility that comes in here if you are going to go for the long term. And I think I've said this to you, and I believe it so firmly. Every company over 100 years, I say society gives you a license to operate very clearly they determine in the long run that you can operate. And when I think of every country we're in, we are a citizen of that country. We're not just in it. And so to last for the long term and be able to create value for shareholders, I think you have to also create value for those other constituents.
0: But Jenny, I've been a journalist for four decades, covered business. I believe I'm hearing something very different in the last few years from what I heard before then, that that something has changed in the way people like you and your colleagues are thinking about your corporations a, a, and your responsibility yeah. to society. So what okay. has changed?
1: Okay, you've been a journalist for decades, and I've run a company for decades. But I also know that 185 others who signed it, didn't think twice about signing it, yeah. right? It was not a very big, broad, robust discussion of, oh boy, this is this is not what I aspire to do. Many people view. Now, I think today's age, you're held to a higher standard around this topic. We should all be held to a higher standard. And why today. are you held to a higher standard? I- I'll tell you why, because I think there's a rate and pace of technology change yeah. that is moving so fast that the discontinuities are coming faster. And if you don't look at all these constituents, I- I'm sorry, Alan, I believe that it's our job. If I'm going to build these technologies, technologies, I got to bring them into the world safely.
3: Yeah. And
1: bringing them into the world safely means you look at the communities, you look at the people, you look at their skills, you look at the impact. So if I build a quantum system and it can break encryption, I darn well better build the other side of this too. And that is this responsibility of what I call, you've heard me say it, responsible stewardship. Yeah. And that to me is responsible so, stewardship. So
0: the speed of change and the impact I think this puts has it on, raised the bar.
1: It, yes. And it's put it on everybody's radar screen. That's really interesting. And and I think those who don't do it, by the way, are what cause some trouble out there. And therefore, we want everyone to aspire to a higher position on this because you don't want bad behavior by a few to derail a digital economy, as an example. And
0: so in putting together that statement at the business roundtable, were you trying to change corporate behavior?
1: Without a doubt. It starts with yourself, right? Because I think you sign up for those things, and you'd be willing to be audited against them, right? And I think it's a virtuous circle, by the way, or virtuous cycle, that um, you have to have return to shareholders and these things, and they become a self-reinforcing mechanism. And then we had said, let's get it down because it's something we think a, any one of us can do better anytime. and B, those who don't, we want to bring up to this level. None of us actually said this means that the shareholder supremacy is over, meaning no one said shareholder wasn't important. It D- didn't well, say that at all. Okay, so- It doesn't I've, say they're the only important no, thing, but, right? But, I mean, I've I mean, heard I read, that argument. I
0: read the old statement, and it said shareholders are your primary responsibility, yeah. and I read the new statement, and it mentioned
1: it has, employees, it does. customers,
0: it has. communities, and the environment- before the word shareholder ever
1: appeared. Did you hear from your shareholders on this at all? Look, we have had very positive feedback. Very positive. So yeah. not negative feedback. And it's what our shareholders have come to expect from IBM. So I'm not surprised that I did not hear anything negative. Yeah. Um, I heard only positive reinforcement. Were you surprised? About by- being a values-driven, innovation-driven yes. company. Were
0: you surprised by the size of the reaction, that it got as much attention as it did? I still hear people talk about
1: yeah. it. Yeah. I think we're, the only thing uh, most surprising would have been, it was mostly, for the most part, it's media that has reacted in that way uh, versus, I think, mean, most any business person I've talked to felt strongly that that is the way that we should behave and, well, therefore, how to operate a company. And it, in fact, is what many people do. I mean,
0: some of the media, if you look at the editorial page of The I Wall know. Street Journal or the editorial page of The Economist, have said, this is a mistake,
1: nobody we shouldn't
0: muddy up the waters, shareholders own the company.
1: I think where there's been the most debate is when people tried to polarize. I don't get to live in a black and white world, OK? You can write black and white, but I don't live in a black and white world. And so I have to live in a world with shades of gray in between and always manage those things. And that's, to me, the difference of that discussion.
0: Rick Wartzman was in the room when the Business Roundtable mission was being hatched. He's at the Drucker Institute, an organization he led from its founding in 2007 until 2016. He's also author of the End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. I, I recommend the book. So, Rick, tell us about that extraordinary dinner. It
2: was extraordinary. I didn't know. I'd never met Jamie Dimon. I mean, it was his dinner. He was the host. And we talked about a lot of issues. And I think his point through a lot of it was that, why are you guys so hard on us? Companies, companies already take care of all their stakeholders. You wouldn't be in business if you didn't take care of your customers and take care of your employees and care about the communities you operate in. And it was really a respectful, good dialogue. One of the things that I kept harping on in particular was, if you feel this way, why is the Business Roundtable's statement explicitly say otherwise? And I remember at the end of the dinner, Diamond said that they would take a look at it. And I've been like you, Alan, covering this stuff for a long time. And I thought, well, that's a good kiss off. I'll never hear about that again.
0: (laughs) So you were surprised a year later when they actually changed. I was stunned. But Rick, at the end of the day, it's just words. Yes, it is. Okay, so they put out a new statement different from the statement they put out in 1996. Do you think anything fundamentally has changed? I think
2: that what is fundamentally changed changed is that businesses are starting to question shareholder primacy for real. I think that you talk to most CEOs, they, they do think the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of putting shareholders above everybody else, including maybe especially their workers. And it's hard to look at what's happened in the country politically, kind of whatever form of populism, whether you're a, a Trump populist or a Bernie Sanders populist, all of that taking hold you know, is not being a reaction to wage stagnation over four decades, uh, people feeling increasing pressures from a, a lack of good benefits that their companies once provided.
0: Rick, Ginny Rometty said that many of the companies on the business roundtable were already operating this way, even if the statement didn't say that.
2: Well, I think they think they're operating that way. And of course, they are in part. No company, you know, can't pay any attention to its customers or its employees or the communities it operates in. Um, It wouldn't be in business very long. It's a matter of degree. It's a matter of balance. It's a matter of where the emphasis is. It's a matter of when there are tough trade offs. Do shareholders always win and these other stakeholders end up on the short end of the stick? I I think that's what you have to look at. And again, it's hard to look at the aggregate statistics like wage stagnation and conclude that companies by and large have been successfully balancing the interests of all their stakeholders. Otherwise, the numbers would be different.
0: I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Something big seems to be going on in the world of business. There's a shift from a focus on shareholders to a focus on stakeholders. I'm hearing this everywhere.
3: Why is it happening? This is a realization that if you effectively serve a broad cross-section of stakeholders, that's actually conducive to generating a premium return for shareholders. This is not an either-or. Maybe in the short term, one could prioritize profits at the expense of other constituents, but in the long term, you have to align those interests to deliver premium shareholder returns consistently.
0: A lot of people I talk to want to know, is this real or is this just a public relations act?
3: This is being built into the core of leading companies' strategies, and you're seeing the landscape shift drastically. Just in the last few months, views from leading investors around the way in which this is driving capital allocation decisions, very tangible climate commitments from many large organizations, and a very significant interest from our employee base – Around their desire to make certain that the organization they work for aligns with their values. Joe, thanks for being with us. Alan, it's a real pleasure.
0: So I caught up again with Jenny this past week, the day after she stepped down as CEO of IBM. I wanted to talk to her about a cause that she has devoted herself to over the course of her career and her time as CEO. And that's training workers, training workers all over the globe, not just at IBM, to be ready for the radical changes coming in the job market over the next couple of decades. That's become an even more critical challenge as we try to dig ourselves out of the hole that the coronavirus has created in our economy. So Jenny, we're faced with this pandemic now, everybody's working from home. Do you think this crisis is gonna speed up the transition to digital, to the cloud, to artificial intelligence?
1: Well, I think there's no doubt that this will speed up everyone's transformation to be a digital business. You know, we see it with all of our clients, Alan, because I think about the first phase everyone went through, it's obvious, health and welfare and wellness for everyone. We've got over 90% of our over 350,000 people well over 90% are working from home. And, and some number have to be out there physically, which is why they're not. Um, and so that's point one. But point two now, I think you can already see how people are going to emerge their businesses differently. And I see it in four areas. I think it will accelerate the move to the cloud. And it's not just because of the cloud. It's because people now saw what was brittle when they tried to go change something in this you know pandemic. And so they're going to say, wow, I got to modernize and move to the cloud. I think the second thing it showed was, boy, I wish I'd had a lot more automation. So you're going to see a real focus on extreme automation. I think the third is very interesting on supply chains. You will see people building a lot of flexibility that they could be local or global in the supply chain. And the fourth thing is all around a new way of working. We are a very mobile workforce, but even we are looking at, hey, there are some things I would reconfigure permanently. And now you've got the added dimension of jobs here.
0: So, Jenny, even before this crisis hit, you were quite passionate about the need for training, reskilling to deal with the rapid pace of change. Everything you just said makes me think that that's going to accelerate even more.
1: It, It will. I mean, it will always make, I think, the number one thing a company hires for is propensity to learn. If this shows anything this is going to be about adaptability. So forget about hiring for a hard skill, point one. Point two, I think it's going to show that, you know, before we had 7 million job openings. Well, now we have so many people that are unemployed and that in in many ways, when you throw a deck of cards in the air, everyone's not going to land back in the same spot now. And when they go to return to work, yes, some will return to the jobs they had, but now many others The job may not exist or they'll be looking. So I think this is going to put a huge focus under the spotlight on what we're all going to do to reskill people for these new areas so that they can all find a place in the digital economy. You know from our conversations, it's been one of my biggest fears for, for years that the digital economy would be not inclusive. And that now we are, this is gonna put us to the test to make it inclusive. So people from all walks of life, mid-career retrained to people without a college degree, Find their way into getting a job in this digital economy because that's what's going to accelerate.
0: But how are we going to meet that challenge? As you said, even before the crisis, the challenge was huge. Yes. Now it's huge squared, huge times 100.
1: I mean, how how do we do that? Okay, so I believe what we need to do now is stay focused on public private partnerships to get this done. If we look at the government to do it, not going to happen at the speed it's needed. It's about speed. So, Um, I am, as executive chairman, going to continue to accelerate our efforts, and they're at two ends of a spectrum. On one side, it is the youth, and I use the word youth meaning you can't count on every person that works for you to have a college degree. And so, as you know, we've been focused on a program now with over 600 companies and in 25 countries, which is a six-year high school that they can develop and people can develop the right kinds of both digital skills, but it's more about a digital way of working because it's it's not the hard skill. It's the teaming and how you work in that environment. And you graduate high school with an associate degree and a high school degree. We're up to a couple hundred thousand kids coming through these. I use the word kid very loosely here. um, coming through these schools around the world. <laughs> and uh, we, we coined that term new collar, not blue collar, not yeah. white collar. You know, it's a good thing, but they can do anything from cyber, which is one of the number one things in security needed in this environment right now. They conclude cloud transitions. So this is not just us. You have to open your workforce and be willing to reset all your job wrecks to accept these people into your workforce. So that's one end of a spectrum. Well, the other end is the one that um, now I think we're going to have to really triple down on, which is reskilling of people that yeah. are mid-career. And that's what I meant by when you throw a deck of cards in the air, does everyone land back in the same hand? Maybe not. And so yeah. this is around now apprenticeships. This is around we have done much work on. Uh, Returnships for women or those that have left the workforce to care for family to come back in, short retraining that pulls them back into the workforce, and a really concerted effort on veterans and the like to pull them back in and into your workforce. So I see this work at two sides.
0: Yeah. Now, you said this the government can't do this alone. I mean, if you think back to the 1990s when NAFTA passed, retraining was kind of thought of as a government responsibility. So that's really changed, hasn't
1: it? And absolutely and, and for a couple of reasons. One is because of the magnitude and the time we have to do it. And so it will never happen in that time. The second is because look, it's my responsibility which gets us back to our conversation of purpose of a corporation to prepare society to work with the technologies I'm introducing. I feel that is part of our private sector responsibility to do and therefore I both need the employees and I have a duty to prepare society to work with those technologies. And so when you put these two together, that those two reasons, both purpose and need and time frame, is what drives this.
0: Ginny, you, you have a multi-decade commitment to this topic, but when you look out there at what's going on in the business community, are things happening anywhere near fast enough to meet the size of this challenge?
1: You know, as with any big challenge, you've got to set up a great goal and then take big steps towards it, right? And- so I look back and I say, Alan, last year in the United States, 15% of our hiring, and we're the our, one of the largest techs in the United States, 15% was what I call new hire, new, new collar. So 15% of a large number of hiring is a very big number. So I think there are plenty of companies that are now turning their sights onto this. In part, it's because they need the skill, but they also believe that if we don't have an inclusive society, this is not good for any of us, right? And so there's many reasons and motivations. Is it fast enough? No, but do I see everyone accelerating their effort? You know, from my work on the business roundtable, all the companies are pulling together on this. In fact, one of the things we're, uh, going to soon be announcing with the government, is a program and a campaign that says to people, hey, it's okay to switch careers, and you don't necessarily have to have a college degree. And so we're really advancing and trying to get regulations and laws for the United States, as an example, that say things like Pell Grants and loans, they can be used for certificates, for programs. You want to be an EMT, you don't have to have a four-year college degree. Now, those are great. Look, you, I, What we wanted more than anything are four year degrees. So I'm not saying it's negative but there has to be other interim steps. And these are the things when you say, is it fast enough? I see the government now starting to move on these to open the pipeline and and make it so that more people can get these skills.
0: How about providing some money to encourage it? I mean, we, we have a $2 trillion relief bill. Is there enough in there to encourage? I mean, you could argue that this is a moment of opportunity. You've got millions of people who are either out of work or furloughed. Now is a great time to start the training process. Is there enough uh, impetus in the uh, government relief programs to make that happen?
1: Well, I think the focus has really been on wellness right now, right, in the health issue, in the crisis. It will soon now turn to this. I know in my own company, we've already started all our work streams about how to return to work safely, how to prepare skills, for in how to bring more people in with these skills. I'm part of a business roundtable effort that's also about how to prepare the economy now. So I think we're gonna quickly turn to that. So to, your, to direct question, is there enough done? No, not yet. We need to do more to accelerate this battle so that we can once again make every American feel like their future is better than their past.
0: So Jenny, talk about all the things that IBM is doing to address this pandemic.
1: Well, I know many companies are doing many things too, but I would tell you, I think this speaks to our purpose and our culture. Uh, To date, it's been over $200 million of donation, but it's more about what it is. And it's in four big areas. It's around work to help find the cure. It's about work to provide care, particularly for first responders. Uh, work to get trusted data out to consumers. And the fourth is get those kids up and going in their distance learning for school right now. How many kids do not have an internet connection to do their distance learning? So we have done tens of thousands of schools already. That's all donation, by the way. And 300,000 kids in New York we're working on getting up who don't have internet access. 300,000 in New York schools. So we're getting them the iPads, getting them out there, getting that going. Yeah. Have you looked at the Weather Company app on COVID to track COVID in your in your county? Yeah, I did look at the weather
0: app. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it scared it scared the hell out of me. I went once and I never went back.
1: <laughs> you know, we're up over 50 million users already. 50 million.
0: Wow. And growing wow. you know, because
1: everyone looks at not just themselves, they look at their mother, their kids, their, you know, whatever it is where they're at and watching the tracking, right?
0: Do you make money off of it? No. None.
1: None.
0: Why are you doing it?
1: it? Because it's the right thing to do. And you know what else? Because we have so many people that come to this cause of hurricane. You know, they're so used to it for weather emergencies. So we're approved to deal with all the emergency groups. And we felt there was nothing out there that was giving a trusted source of data on COVID. That was, this is right from CDC and WHO, right? And particularly not around the world. We're moving around the world now too. The U.S. has it by county, other parts of the world. It's really interesting. Good some parts, shaky other parts. But it is one confirmed, what would you call it, source of truth, right? That's out here. So, because people go here, we thought it would be the right place that they go for weather. You check this, at, and that's what they're doing. They're checking every morning.
0: It makes sense. I mean, my youngest daughter is in uh, New Orleans. This is much more like a weather crisis than it is like an economic crisis.
1: Yep. Yeah. You now, let's hope it never becomes it there for them, right? But um, yeah, you, you and I have often talked about Watson. I'm telling you, Watson's hitting a home run. On it's Watson answering many of the COVID questions out there because. Finally, an application that that needs to show how AI is really good and uh, that Watson that understands the context. So things like, you know, old people in Miami, their meal service, you know, for senior citizens. They're waiting two hours in uh, phone lines on this stuff.
0: How how is Watson doing that? Is it working with public relief agencies? Is it working with
2: the government? It's government.
1: It's typically state governments all around or like Atlanta Children's Hospital. We put that up overnight for them to be able to families calling in. So now we got 50 states going, we're in about 11 countries in Europe uh, answering. It's every question you can think of around, you know, do I have the symptoms, what is it, what do I do, where do I go, blah, blah, blah. And I think this would be where people think, wow, this is the goodness of AI of what it is out there.
0: So I think Jenny Rometty has been an important voice in this changing nature of business leadership. If you listen to her talk about worker training, she's not just talking about training IBM's workers. She's talking about training the people who have been left behind in society to get them up to a level where they can take the kinds of jobs that are going to be available in the future. That's an important social issue. And I think she's taken a real leadership role on it. The business roundtable statement is important as well. It's a change from the way the roundtable has operated in the past. And I think it has the potential. We have to watch closely. They have to adopt the metrics. But it has the potential to change the course of American capitalism. That's what we're going to be watching on Leadership Next. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is produced and edited by the amazing Dan Sacker. It's engineered and mixed by the Wizards, Wayne Schulmeister, and Debbie Daughtry, and it's written by me, Alan Murray, and by Dan Sacker. Our music is by Jason Snell, executive producers Mason Cohen and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is recorded at Fortune Media headquarters in downtown Manhattan. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.
1: Hey, Leadership Next listeners. There's more C-Suite Insight available now at the all-new Fortune. You'll find expert curation, exclusive videos, and clear analysis on topics
3: ranging from AI to digital health. Subscriptions start at less than a dollar a week. Visit fortune.com slash subscribe and discover why it pays to
0: know.